Pastor Xavier Reese notes the difference between a business plan and a spiritual work. Some of the characteristics of churches today are most likely more after the worldly organization model and corporations in the Church of Jesus Christ. Rather than depend upon God's word and spirit, they're trusting the worldly models. For they are carnal products of man and strategies and devices. Yet they will attract people, but it's not God's church. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This simple truth from Acts chapter 2 reminds us that no matter how elaborate the outreach, it's none other than God who brings the converts. And in a message drawn from Acts chapter 18, Pastor Xavier unfolds God's formula for church growth and offers four identifying signs to look for that God is indeed a part of the work being established. Let's listen. The message is entitled, How God Leads in Ministry. The ministry today too often is presented as a product of seminary training, an intense understanding of church growth, a good knowledge of marketing, and it's to attract and keep people. Yet the Bible teaches us a complete different message. That God is the one who calls men and women into ministry. It is His church. He alone adds to the church daily such as should be saved. And He is the one that determines the extent of each ministry. Not all ministries are the same. Now, some of the characteristics of churches today are most likely more after the worldly organization model and corporations in the church of Jesus Christ. Rather than depend upon God's word and spirit, they're trusting the worldly models. And it's always the word of God that's the plumb line. The norm today is contrary to scripture. Some have um, extensive counseling programs resolving and revolving around therapeutic and psychological methods which are humanistic in its totality, a knowledge of mankind and wisdom, but they call it Christian psychology. It's a very clear practice of searching out the scriptures with what seems to be compatible and placing them next to the problem. The only problem is that the majority of the times it's out of context. Christian psychology is like grape nut. It's neither grape nor nut. What is it? Psychology in the Bible is like oil and water. You can put them in the same bottle, shake them around. It seems like it's going to blend, but you just let it sit all on its own. It will divide all on its own. There is no field of Christian psychology. If you don't believe me, when you leave here, call up UCLA, USC, Berkeley, or any university and ask them for the Christian psychology department. They're only humanistic Psychology departments, all the teachers of the past, all the mentors are secular humanists. Others also are able to provide 12-step programs for former alcoholics and drug addicts to give them 12 biblical steps by which. Why don't you take the shortcut, one step, Jesus. All things pass away, everything becomes new. You've got to reckon the old man dead. Your alcoholic or drug addiction is not a disease. 
It perhaps has brought diseases to you now, cirrhosis of the liver, hepatitis C. But originally, you chose to drink. You chose to take drugs, as I chose to drink. You didn't walk across a bar and some kind of thing jumped out of the bar and infected you. It's not a disease. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, learn of me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight. You believe that or do you not? Because if not, you're, you're contradicting the scriptures. Paul certainly was ignorant of 12-step programs. Listen to what he says to Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, 10, 11. He says, and some of you were fornicators, idolaters, homosexuals, drunkards, and many other things. But then he says... You were washed, sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Notice that Paul said, you were, not you are. Past tense. I drank like a fish, but when I became a Christian, I let that go. You understand? It's a choice. It's almost comical if it wasn't so tragic. Why don't ministries have... Ministries for recovering fornicators and adulterers. Thieves. Kleptos. So you got to start catering to everybody. The gospel takes care of all of that. It would be ridiculous to have a recovery ministry for fornicators and adulterers. It would be incompatible as much as the other one is. We're treating the church as a medical model, which is a non-parallel to that. It's out of context. Others are pumping you for money constantly. They want to expand their ministry. Apparently they're not satisfied with what God has called them to do. They think that they deserve more. So they pump people for money. Let's be clear about what the scriptures say about money. In 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. Or 2 Corinthians speaks about it. And it's, it says that we are to give to God from our heart hilariously. We're to give on Sunday, and we take once a week, that's all. And it is a privilege. It's, it should never be a pressure. If you ever feel pressured, don't give. If anybody ever pressures you to give, get up and walk out. That includes this ministry, by the way. Because God's not up in heaven biting his nails. He's not broke. Stock market doesn't affect him. No world economy. And if preachers and teachers are telling you how great God is and how rich He is, but then they're pumping you for money constantly, they're a contradiction to the gospel. Now we have the seeker-friendly movement and the emerging church movement, which is ecumenicalism. Let's put away all doctrine and let's just love one another. Let's do good works. It's not what the gospel says. But you get to choose who you're going to line yourself up with. Jesus or man. <laughs> That's a choice. Now all of these things that I have stated are not the things that are going to keep ministry growing healthy and spiritually. For they are carnal products of man. Through programs and strategies and devices. Yet they will attract people. They'll even make your church grow. But it's not God's church. It's your church. You become very clever. Now you've got to keep 
satisfying the people, to keep the people. Remember two important things about growth in the church. First, growth is not to be sought out at the expense of teaching or doctrine. And secondly, the end does not justify the means. Good works cannot justify unbiblical teaching or unbiblical methods. The church has forgotten that today. In our text here, Acts 18, 1-17, we have Paul's ministry at Corinth, which provides for us four ways a person can know that God is leading in the ministry. Four simple ways. The book of Acts is a pattern for leadership. Remember that. Let me read here, 1-17. through 17. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain... A Jew named Achilla, born of Pontus, and he had recently come from Italy and his wife Priscilla because Claudius had uh, commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. And so because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jew and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garment and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, uh, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. And then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night vision, uh, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this, this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I would bear with you. But it is a question of words and names of your own law. Look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat, and then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. The ministry of Paul at Corinth provides for us four ways in which you can know that God has leaned in ministry. First, verse 1 through 3, God brings the necessary people together. He brings the necessary people together. Secondly, four through eight, God provides a place to meet. Thirdly, nine through eleven, God encourages his servants. And then fourthly, twelve through seventeen, God confirms his word. Very important principles for every person who believes it's called to ministry to know in confirmation of that ministry they say God's in. Let's begin here with God brings the necessary people together, one through three. In verse one, God led Paul to the next destination. He departed from Athens. He came to Corinth. Uh, Corinth, uh, as you know, was the capital of the province of South Achaia, while Thessalonica was the capital of the north. The city was destroyed by uh, Mumias, 
of Rome in 146 B.C. and later colonized a century after Caesar made it so in 44-46 B.C. Now, the city was about 45-50 miles approximately from Athens. Unlike Athens, Corinth was the center of commerce, not culture. It was a business center. The city enjoyed two ports, Sancria and Lacum, since it sat on the isthmus or the thin strip of land, which um, its neck was five miles wide, and therefore the city was called the city of two ports. And if you know anything about any port city, you've got a lot of people, you've got a lot of interaction, a lot of money, a lot of corruption, a lot of vice. It's just the custom of port cities. It was called the Bridge of Greece between Asia Minor in Italy, and the ships of a substantial size would be rolled across that five-mile land strip with round logs. They would empty their cargo, be carried across, and they would bring these ships on round logs and roll them, place them, and they'd roll them straight across five miles. Because that was better than going southerly route to the Cape Malia. It was very dangerous. They used to have a saying that it said, let him who thinks to sail around Malia make his will. So they would rather just take it across those five miles. Now, all trade from north, south, east, and west passed through Corinth. Very wealthy, very corrupt. The very geographical and commercial position promoted her wickedness, and it was synonymous with a life of debauchery, sensual pleasure. The Las Vegas of the day, if you will. The city had a temple of Aphrodite, a thousand priestesses who prostituted themselves. There was the temple of Escalapius and many others that we don't have time to get into. But uh, very pagan, very occultic, very evil. Notice in verse 2, God guided Paul to the people uh, God wanted to use. The past record of Acts bears witness to this. You remember in Acts 16, Paul was directed by God to take Timothy as his uh, disciple in the second missionary journey. He also was led by God, guiding him step by step to Troas. As he saw the man from Macedonia. But first he told him not to preach in Asia Minor, Bithynia. He hindered him. And he led him to that man in Macedonia. God was guiding him. From there he guided him to the Jewish synagogue at, uh, at, at, um, at Philippi, first of all. To Lydia, the river. And then from there, the young girl who was demon possessed. And then they got thrown in jail to the jailer and his family. And then from there he was guided to the synagogue of Thessalonica, as you know, and used the persecution to guide him and Silas to Berea. Once again, God used the attempt on Paul's life at Berea to guide him to Athens in Acts 17. And he had a positive ministry, not like the commentary said that it was a flop. It was not a flop. People accepted the gospel. Again, people judge Success of ministry by numbers, which is always a wrong measure. It's a modern uh, standard, not a biblical one. God now guides Paul to Corinth to partner in ministry with Aquila here in Priscilla, who had been exiled from Rome by Claudius. In verse 2, Priscilla and Aquila are natives of Pontus over in Bithynia, Asia Minor. Stop and think of the chance factor of Paul meeting up with these two, this couple, uh, in a city like Corinth. 600 to 700,000, two-thirds of that being slaves. 
And he just so happened. You remember the Old Testament? And, 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 and it says that um, Ruth just so happened to come to, to reap in the fields of Boaz. There's no happens if you're a Christian. God directs and guides you. Now, don't think it of Greek determinism. Well, whatever God's going to do. No, you've got a free will. You've got to obey God and he will guide you. So get Greek determinism out of your mind when it comes to biblical guidance and direction by God. Many have pointed out the decree mentioned by Satunius in his life, the life of Claudius. Uh, he says, he, Claudius, expelled the Jews from Rome because they were in a state of continual tumult at the instigation of one Crestus. The years believed to be 49, others believe it was 50 AD. It is believed by some that the word Crestus is a misspelling referring to Christ. But we're not sure. But remember, this early in history, the, the Roman Empire had given the Jewish faith a legal existence. Uh, religio licito. A religion that was lawful. And they didn't make real distinction between the Jewishness and the Christian part of it. You understand? Until later down the road. And we'll see this evidence here. Now, look at verse 3. God brought people then who were of the same heart Regarding ministry, but he begins to identify by this camaraderie in the trade. Achille and Priscilla were of the same trade as Paul. They were tent makers, leather workers. Uh, we know the history of Paul, that he made tents for a living. And they would be able to support one another spiritually, first of all. Every rabbi was obligated to have a trade taught to him by his father. For he was not to take money preaching or teaching. That was... The Old Testament concept. They had a saying. It said, he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him robbery. Fathers, you make sure you teach your sons and your daughters to work. The sooner they work, the sooner they'll find out whether they want to get educated or work all their life. And if they choose to get educated, they'll be hard workers. And if they choose work, they'll be committed workers. You understand? You give everything to your children, you destroy them. You let them work for it. Notice they would be able to support themselves financially also and be blameless. As Paul pointed out many times in Acts, Corinthians, Thessalonians, that he never took anything from anybody to bring charge to the gospel. There was no envy, jealousy, greed in these men and women. They understood what God had done in their life. They understood priorities. Now, Achille and Priscilla were Christians who had a heart for ministry. We're going to see it down in 1826 as they go to Ephesus with Paul when they leave Corinth. And they take Barnabas aside and correct him in a more perfect way because he only knew the baptism of John. Now, some say, well, they weren't Christians at this point. We don't know this. It's speculation. God brings them together. They, they had to, to me, I believe they were Christians already because there was a church in Rome and Paul probably got some of that information from them because Paul later on writing to the Romans says, And I desire to go to Rome, and when the Lord leaves me, that was his plans. Achille and Priscilla left with Paul. At the end of Corinthian ministries, those verses tell us, and there they were with Paul. Second Timothy 4.19, Priscilla is also called by the diminutive form, Prisca. Priscilla's name, at times, if you notice, appears... First before Achilla, her husband. Perhaps this is given emphasis because of her role in ministry. But she never appears without her husband. He is her covering. 
He is always mentioned with her. Very important. Romans 16.3, 1 Corinthians 16.9 to mention a few. And here right in our text. Paul says about this couple that they both laid down their own necks for his life in Romans 16.4. They were committed. They jeopardized their lives. You remember Saul, who was called to be the first king of Israel? God guided him to the prophet Samuel. And he didn't even know it. God has all the ability to guide his church and the people he calls. But he does that as they're walking in obedience to the scriptures and seeking him. He is faithful to do that. Saul didn't even know God was guiding them until afterwards. But God was faithful. When Calvary Chapel was merely a Bible study, God brought the necessary people there was no coincidence. I was on staff at Calvary Chapel, West Covina for four years from 1976 to 1980. In 1980, well, prior to that, just, well, it began in 80, March. They, someone expressed they have a Bible study out towards Alhambra. So I, I, I said, sure, we'll do it. And I didn't know right away that God was going to raise the church up. I said, sure, I'll do a Bible study. And when God determined to begin the church... He brought the necessary people for leadership and oversight of the body from the beginning. God raises everything up from church. I take no resumes. I don't put ads in the newspaper. <laughs> God raises people from family. Romans 12, 4 through 5 says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. We affect one another. We, we are going to change one another to an extent. God worked in the heart of people who came to be involved in ministry. Every time we had a midweek or a Sunday service, we had to pack everything up. And we would fill up six, seven trucks and go to the locality. And we clean the toilets and clean all of everything. And then when we left, break down and take everything back. Cribs, nurture, everything. Six and a half years. Some of you remember. By the way, the men are here at 5 in the morning, sweeping the streets and the sidewalks and everything else to prepare for you to come also. That's a carryover value from the old days, you understand? Getting a building didn't change us. Every time we clean, we had to clean the next week again. <laughs> All who came were eager to participate. Young mommies were involved in the nurseries and did their... Their, their part, and then their husbands also, they were involved in ministry, they were ushering, they were doing different things, the evangelism. We touched every house in Alhambra door to door before we left in six and a half years. We just followed the JWs and we just followed them up. <laughs> First Corinthians twelve seventeen through 20 says, If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the, well, the whole were a hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has said, the members, each one of them in the body, just as it he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. God puts it all together. Now let me say that the bigger the church gets, the less involvement there is. The bigger the church gets, the less giving there is. I'm just telling you the facts. Because it's easier to get lost in crowds. You understand? But you know what? God's not biting his nails. He's always been sufficient, as I'll show you. We thank God for you. 
but our eyes are not on you. Our eyes are on the one who called us and who began this ministry. Pastor Xavier Reese, giving glory to the Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Now, there's much more to this study to come next time, but if your schedule won't permit you to tune in, as always, you can pick up a copy of this message, and the title you want to ask for is How God Leads in Ministry. It's available on CD for just $4. And make sure you pass on this study to someone in your church or Bible study. Now, once again, the title to ask for is How God Leads in Ministry, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. Next time, Pastor Xavier Reese explains a simple truth of church growth. Where God guides, He provides. Hope you'll be back. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 